Well, we are looking this fall at a series called Transformed about the idea of discipleship. How do we slowly become more and more like Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit works on us? You know, in our culture, we kind of use the phrase, the whole package, to mean someone who's good at almost everything. If you think maybe in the sports world, the hockey center iceman, if they can skate really well, shoot accurately, if they have great vision to make amazing passes, and they're good defensively, they come back 200 feet back into their own zone and they defend well. We look at players like that and we go, wow, those, those players have, have the whole package. Maybe Sidney Crosby or Nathan McKinnon come to mind. When we say that, we only mean that in terms of hockey, obviously. We don't think that they're this incredible person uh, that's making huge contributions in politics, social justice, world peace initiatives, and we don't really expect them to. All we ask them to do is be a great hockey player and maybe be charitable in their community. It's also true in the arts world. You know, an actress that has the whole package. Uh, Maybe an actress like Amy Adams comes to mind. She's a great actress. She has that ability. She has a beautiful singing voice. Uh, She obviously has a pretty face. She can dance. Uh, And we might look at her and say, wow, she's got the whole package. When it comes to major world leaders and innovators, what does it mean for them to have the whole package? Well, we don't care if they can shoot a hockey puck really well or sing really well. We kind of want them to have some measure of either genius power, and glory. What I mean? Well, think about this guy for a second. Rudolf Diesel. You'll recognize his last name. Yeah, he's the guy that invented the diesel engine. How many diesel engines would be currently being used in our world right now? I don't know, but it's got to be in the millions. Here's the tragic part of Rudolf Diesel's life. He believed after he had invented and got a diesel engine running, after he had perfected it, he actually committed suicide. He believed his invention was a complete failure and no one would ever use it. What a tragic story. He was a genius for sure, but he didn't stay around long enough for any power or glory. Think about Winston Churchill, British Prime Minister during World War II. I love that picture. He was always smoking a cigar. He was hilarious. Absolutely world-class leader, held the United Kingdom and really the resolve of the Allied nations together during the darkest days of World War II. It really seemed like defeat was inevitable. Some of his, his speeches are so famous, they're still quoted today. He had some measure of genius, he had a big dose of glory, especially in the years since, but shockingly, you may not know, the very end of World War II, 1945, he lost the next election. The guy who had brought the nation through the war was tossed out of office at the height of his fame. He had power for only the briefest of periods. So almost no one in any endeavor in life, from a hockey player to an actress to an inventor to a a politician, no one's truly got the whole package of genius, power, and glory. There's one great exception in all of history, and you guessed it, it's Jesus. Jesus had all three. 
And we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 9 today. If you have your print Bible, I encourage you to open that. If you have an app on your smartphone, and the verses also be on the screen. The first aspect I want to look at is the genius of Jesus. So Luke 9, 1 through 9, says this. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal those who were ill. He told them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out, went from village to village, proclaiming the good news, healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on. He was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him, tried to see Jesus. Now, in those nine verses, we actually begin to see that Jesus had a strategy. He wasn't just reacting to things around him, things that were happening. He had a plan. In verse 1 and 2, we see him commissioning his 12 closest followers, his 12 disciples, with power and authority. Now, that kind of commissioning and sending out, he didn't do that the very first day that he gathered his 12 disciples. In fact, Jesus' strategy was implemented long before he ever called those disciples. I've often quoted uh, Seattle Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson. He's famous for saying the separation is in the preparation. He feels all that off-season work. Every time he's practicing, chucking that football, all the hard work he puts in, studying plays, get himself in amazing physical shape, that's what makes him a great player on the field. The separation's in the preparation. And it's truly it is true. It's what divides the good from the great. Your amount, you're willing to prepare. Well, think about Jesus for a second. If we can rewind the book of Luke a little bit to Luke chapter 3. We see John the Baptist prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus' big public beginning. He is baptized in the Jordan River in front of all these people. God the Father speaks from heaven. God God the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove. And, and the Father speaks these words from heaven, You are my Son in whom I am well pleased. It was an absolute public validation on Jesus and his ministry. Such a crucial beginning. And then in Luke 4, Jesus goes through this intense 40 days of fasting and temptations by the devil. Jesus emerges victorious out of it. Jesus begins challenging and overturning Satan's authority and power. And he would do that right up and through his death and resurrection. It was crucial preparation before he called his 12 disciples. And then finally in Luke 5 and 6, that's where we see Jesus begin to call the disciples. He recruits them and he at first just says, be with me. Just watch 
all the things I'm doing. They watch Jesus perform miracles. They watch him perform healings. Respond when people kind of challenge his teachings. During this time, they're traveling from place to place. And if you think about it, they didn't have cars. They were walking. Those Jesus and his 12 disciples, and it says there were some women followers as well. So as Jesus walking all through the land of Israel, the disciples, every single night, they are around the campfire. They're asking him questions. They're talking. They're eating meals together. Lots of learning during this period. And then in Luke 7, Jesus had to instill the, the lesson in his disciples that he had actually come to save the entire world. The disciples were really focused on their own people, their own country, which is fine, but Jesus ultimately says, I am here to save the entire world, and he heals the servant of a Roman centurion, the very people oppressing the nation. Crucial for them to learn that. Jesus then brings a young boy back from the dead, a display of unprecedented power. And then Jesus just kind of goes on this teaching spree. Some of his most memorable parables. All the lessons that he taught. So all of this is kind of swirling. It's, it's exploding the disciples' uh, references. It, it's expanding their mind. Their hearts are being slowly changed. Jesus really had to overturn a lot of what they thought they knew. And my point for us this morning as we look at this is that that's kind of the model for how to become like Jesus ever since. Really, uh, when you meet someone in, in your experience who's a mature Christian person who's been following Jesus for years, if you ask them the details of their life, they'll tell you there was a time of preparing, of preparation. They'll, they'll tell you about the day they were baptized. They'll tell you about the times in life when they were tested, the trials they went through, the temptations. They'll tell you about their first kind of steps into ministry and, and how they maybe thought they couldn't do what God was asking them, but God provided the strength and the wisdom and the courage to do it. And that's what finally brings all of that to this moment in Luke 9 where Jesus sends the disciples out to try ministry without him right side by side with them. You know, the, the hard work, that, that concept of preparing, is found in most cultures around the world. There's a wonderful Chinese legend that's been passed down generation to generation of time, and it talks about the Chinese emperor and the picture of the rooster. So once upon a time, there was an emperor who was extremely fond of roosters. For whatever reason, he was just fascinated with that creature. He loved how they looked. He loved how watching them. He, he thought it was just kind of a really neat symbol. And so he thought, you know what? I want the ultimate artist painting or depiction of a rooster. And I want it to be prominently displayed here in the palace. So he found what he considered to be probably one of the most talented artists in the entire kingdom of China, and he commissioned them. And the artist said, Emperor, this will take me three years to complete. And the emperor was a little annoyed. Three years? I have to wait three years? That seems ridiculous, but okay. Artists are a little flaky, so... Um, 
the guy goes off. He, he's working, and finally the three years comes to an end. The emperor calls him back into the throne room, and he, he has nothing to show. And the emperor says, so where's my painting? <laughs> and he says, uh, no problem. And he pulls out a blank canvas. He pulls out all of his inks and his arts and colors. And in under five minutes, this guy produces the most astounding, realistic, lifelike picture of a rooster. It just blows everyone away. It's like he captured the essence of a rooster on that canvas. And the emperor looks at it and says, you could do that in under five minutes and you made me wait three years? Is this some kind of scam? Is this some kind of statement of rebellion against me as the emperor? And the painter said, no, 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 emperor, calm yourself. Calm, calm your fury. He says, please follow me to my workshop. And so he led the emperor to his workshop and as he opened the door and brought the emperor inside, there were sketches upon sketches upon sketches of roosters. And he said, Emperor, it has taken me three years to master how to present a rooster on a canvas. He said, if I hadn't done that, I would never be able to do what I did in under five minutes for you. He goes, this is the result of three years of work. Preparation is the key. Jesus prepared his disciples before he ever sent them out to do ministry on their own. So you're saying to yourself, all right, Pastor Dan, I can see that. Jesus was a genius in his preparation. But what was his actual strategy of training disciples? Well, that's a question the man Michael Hyatt used to be the chief executive officer, the head of Thomas Nelson Publishing. You probably have books in your house. With If you look on the back, it'll say Thomas Nelson Publishers. Huge, huge publishing company. And this guy was the CEO. And he finally got to a point where, as the leader, he found himself so stretched thin, so pulled in so many directions, he actually took a leave of absence from the com company. And he said, I need to study leadership. And you know who he studied? Jesus. And this is was his conclusion. This is directly from his blog that he wrote. He said, successful leaders, when I look around at, at Canada, the U.S., European countries, he says they are all focused on reaching the masses. They speak at big conferences, host popular television and radio shows, publish best-selling books, they write blogs, they engage in social media. Simply put, their goal is to be as wide as possible. They want to extend their influence. And there's nothing wrong with that, he said. But when I studied the life of Jesus, it was really radically different. That's not where Jesus started. Jesus' goal wasn't reach or breadth of, of ministry, how many people heard the message. It was, in fact, to go deep. He actively discouraged publicity. On more than one occasion, after performing a jaw-dropping miracle, he told those as witnesses, don't tell anyone about it. Matthew 8, 4, right after Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he comes back down. This is what happened. Jesus heals a man of leprosy. Of leprosy. And then he says to this guy, 
See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and the gift, give the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Jesus was in some ways kind of a publicist nightmare. He was not a marketing guru. Instead, Jesus focused on true depth and long-term impact. To achieve this, Jesus did five things. Number one, he led himself. He constantly is conversing with his father. And oftentimes, we see him leave everyone else and go away to pray. Matthew 14, 23, after he had dismissed them, he went up, went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. Jesus constantly led himself. Then he confided in the three. Jesus had an inner circle comprised of Peter, James, and John. Read in Matthew 17, 1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Jesus allowed that inner group of three to witness his greatest glory and his deepest temptations. He prayed with them. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, James, and John with him and went up on a mountain to pray. Then Jesus worked from that inner core of three to the twelve. He, he trained the twelve. He taught them. He gave them assignments. However, he also shared with them his daily life. As we mentioned, think about all those hours walking along the dusty roads, eating together, campfires, all the moments where there were crowds Jesus healed. The disciples were sharing life with Jesus. The Apostle Paul would later write, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Jesus poured his very life into the disciples. Because of this, he entrusted them with power to do the work that he had set out to do. Number four, we often think about only the 12 disciples, but Jesus actually had a little bit bigger group than that. He had a group of 70. It talks about that in the New Testament. And Jesus sent out these 70 in pairs of two. He asked for a big commitment. He gave them virtually no resources, demanded they perform miracles, expect, told them to expect opposition, and he promised no earthly reward. And finally, at the biggest level, Jesus did teach the multitudes. He had a public ministry to thousands. However, every time Jesus speaks, he doesn't just say the popular thing so the crowd will love him. Lots of times Jesus kind of confronted the status quo. He jarred his listeners and often taught in parables. Interestingly, sometimes Jesus doesn't even need, feel the need to clarify everything. He just goes, well, think about it. He often left his audience confused. Immediately after Jesus' death, if you think about it, all Jesus had to show for three and a half years of work, for his entire mission to come to planet Earth, all Jesus had to show for it, the book of Acts says us, was about 120 followers. In fact, his 12 core of disciples, Judas betrayed him. He was down to 11 there. The women, that group of 70, grand total, everyone who was following Jesus was 120 followers. Some people could look at that at that moment and go, wow, that was a complete failure. He came to change the world, but that's all he's got. Yet Jesus' strategy proved to be the work of absolute genius. And because of the greatest miracle in all of history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
those 120 followers, so timid, so scared, were transformed into world beaters. Within seven generations, half the Roman Empire of 60 million people had come to Jesus Christ in faith. 318 AD, the Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the, of the Roman Empire. Here we are in 2020, two and a half billion people claim to follow Jesus around the world from South America to Asia to Russia to North America. Incredible what Jesus' strategy produced. And here we are on the other side of the world from Israel on Vancouver Island in the little town of Ladysmith. So Jesus clearly was a genius. Now, I spent a lot of time on that this morning. And what are the implications? What does that matter to you and I? Well, I think there's two things right away. It should cause us to worship him. Why do we admire Jesus? Flat out, because he was a genius. He knew how to change the world. And it was so the opposite of what everyone else expected. Lots of people have perfected our world in profound ways, but none of them has the influence that Jesus had. And Jesus' influence, oddly enough, continues to grow in our world, not diminish. Second thing, the thing that I think really impacts you and I, it should cause us to trust him with our lives. If Jesus can save the world, if Jesus has such a brilliant strategy to transform every culture, every nation, then maybe, just maybe, you and I should be trusting him with our lives. This morning I want to challenge you to a greater level of trust you've ever had before. Hand over control of your life to Christ and no more taking it back when things get hard. All right, we've looked at the genius. Now we're going to look at the power of Jesus. We're going to pick it up in verse 10 of Luke 9. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then they took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because here we are in a remote place. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. That'll be safe for COVID. No, no, it was nothing to do with that. The disciples did so and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. What an incredible scene. Mariah uh, did a good intro for it today. You know, you think about those 12 disciples. They've just come off their first missions trip experience. 
Jesus had sent them out. Jesus' goal was to gather them, take them off to a quiet place by themselves, and debrief. How did it go, you guys? What happened? What did you learn? And that crowd won't leave them alone. The crowd follows them. So Jesus, it says he did three things. He welcomed the people, he taught them about the kingdom of God, and he performed healing miracles. Late in the afternoon, the disciples, like Jesus, there's a massive amount of people. It it says, and I highlight it in the text there, it says 5,000 men were present that day. Scholars have, have talked about that and speculated it's probably safe to assume there was another two and a half thousand women and children present. This is a massive crowd of people. And the disciples kind of say, oh, okay, Gio, we got to get these people out of here. They're, they're going to starve. They, they need food. And then that startling command, you feed them. You just can't imagine how shocked the disciples are like, what? Us? What are you talking about? You know, they, they would probably think of things like, Jesus, hold the phone here. That would take enough wages if we all worked every single day for eight straight months. Like, that's a lot of cash. And I mean, John is wicked on the barbecue, and Bartholomew can whip up a veggie tray so fast, but honestly, seven and a half thousand people. And Jesus says, well, what do you have? Let's start there. Let's start there. What do you have? They're like, uh, five loaves and two fish. Don't think that's going to be adequate. And then Jesus does this awesome miracle of creative power. He multiplies that in an incredible way. And if you think about it, that actually is the greatest power in the universe. You can create out of nothing. Only God has that kind of power. If you think about that amazing scene in the, in the Old Testament when God brought the whole nation of Israel, the Hebrew people, out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them into the desert. They need food. God provides manna. And it very specifically says each and every day they only got exactly what they needed. No more. And the ones who tried to scoop up extra, it always went bad. And yet here we are, and there are 12 baskets left over. What Jesus was showing us is that we have moved into the era of grace. God in Christ giving us more than we asked or imagined. What a miracle in its pure, raw form. You know, there's an old saying that says, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That has been true throughout history for humans, except one human. Jesus. And the power that Jesus demonstrates, that absolute incredible creative power, Jesus' entire attitude was to use that not for his own selfish wants, desires, or plans. He used it for the care of the crowd, to teach his disciples, to reveal who he truly was, God and man mysteriously combined in one person. All right, we've looked at the genius, we looked at the power And we have one last short category, the glory of Jesus. We're going to jump down to verse 28 of Luke 9 and pick it up there. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him, went up to a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. 
and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, take, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to the master, it is good for us to be here. Don't you love Peter? Like, duh. <laughs> Let us put three shelters. Let's make three tents or something. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I love this, parent. He did not know what he was saying. <laughs> Well-intentioned, but way off track. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice from the cloud was heard saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves, did not tell anyone that time what they had seen. You know, the Bible, the witness of the Holy Spirit, and the teaching of Jesus, faithful followers for the past 2,000 years, has affirmed that great truth that Jesus was 100% God, 100% man, mysteriously combined. The majority of the time, the disciples saw Jesus as a man. They would see him do amazing miracles, all those kind of things. But in this moment, it's like the veils pulled back and his full power and glory blasts out and they are just dumbfounded. What an awesome display. I love Peter. He's, he sticks his foot in his mouth. And I always wondered, kind of, what what's going on in that scene? Why did, what's his deal with, let's build three shelters or three little memorials? Until uh, I finally read this quote by Luke Timothy Johnson, a Bible scholar. He cleared it up for me. He says, in regards to the transfiguration, Peter's error was two things. First, he wanted to control and domesticate the mystery by reducing it to ritual expression, the tense. Isn't that so true? What do we as human beings want to do? Oh, something amazing happened. Let's build a statue. We, we want to control it, domesticate it, make it safe. Second, Peter was still seeing Jesus as just another man of God. He was seeing him as on equal level with Moses and Elijah. And then that voice from heaven, the Father announces correction to those errors, not only for the three disciples, but for all of Mark's readers, including us. First, Jesus is not like other prophets and miracle workers. This is my beloved Son. And then the second, Jesus is the pattern for all discipleship. Listen to him. What a moment. The revealing of his full and crazy identity. You know, that flies in the face of what every other world religion or new religious movement says about Jesus. Think about Buddhism for a second. It teaches that Jesus was not God, but an enlightened man like Buddha. Hinduism teaches that Jesus is an incarnation of God like Krishna. Islam teaches that Jesus was a man and a prophet, but inferior to Muhammad. Jehovah Witnesses say that Jesus was merely the Archangel Michael, a created being that became a man. 
Mormonism teaches that Jesus was only a man and became one of many gods and that he was a polygamist and a half-brother of Lucifer. New Age guru Deepak Chopra says Jesus is a state of consciousness that we can all aspire to. And I thought you needed one that was really out there, Scientology. Uh, You got Tom Cruise and all the rest of them. Teaches that Jesus was an implant forced on Thetan by aliens about a million years ago. Wow. Okay. So the transfiguration flies in the face of all that. The moment when Jesus' full glory as God the Son was put on display. It's a vital piece of why we believe Jesus is who he claimed and demonstrated himself to be. And the implication for us in our lives as we close today is you can't just dismiss Jesus as a wise teacher. You can't just put him up on a shelf and leave him there. Jesus refuses to be put off. He refused to stay dead when they kill him. And he won't stay on the shelf of my life or yours. Jesus is, in fact, the awesome Lord of glory. And he deserves number one place in our lives. Maybe if you're totally honest and you you look deep in your heart, you realize, you know what? I've been playing around at the Christian life. I haven't really been serious about this. If that's you today, then I would say today is the day you bring that to an end. Enough is enough. Do exactly what God the Father declared from heaven that day. This is my son. Listen to him. Maybe that's not what your life situation, maybe when you look at your own heart, you realize I'm I'm following Jesus, my heart is there, but really in practical sense where I get my direction, my guidance for what to do next in life, if I'm totally honest, it's actually much more from culture than it is from Jesus. Again, my challenge would be to you, put Jesus in the number one spot. Give his voice the priority. Well, we began the sermon looking at Sidney Crosby, Nathan McKinnon, hockey players, Amy Adams, an actress. As wonderful as they are, they had limited power. We look at two famous people, Rudolph Diesel, Winston Churchill. They all had some measure of either genius, power, or glory, but nobody had all three. In the end of history, when you boil it all down, there's only one who had the entire, complete, whole package, and that's Jesus Christ. I want to end today with a little excerpt from the book, Who Is This Man? by John Ortberg. This is the best ending I can think to a sermon on Jesus. Listen to this description of who Jesus truly is. He is the hope of the oppressed. He is the inspiration of the despairing. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's the greatest teacher that ever lived, the greatest mind that ever thought. He offered the greatest gift ever given. He launched the greatest movement ever known. Jesus alone mastered life. He alone conquered death. He alone overcame sin. He alone grows more present with every passing year. He's the Son of God. He's the glory of humankind. He's the crucified carpenter of Nazareth. He's the hope of the nations and the Savior of the world. He's the only one to have that complete package of genius, power, and glory. That's who Jesus is. Amen?
Lori 